0: My first week here, I uh, wanted some numbers ran and I ran into an analyst and said, Can you run all these numbers this way? And he said, Sure, and took them and went, and got in the elevator and went home to have dinner with his family. And, you know, it was my assumption coming from the East Coast that when the CIO at the time tells you to run numbers, you go back to your office, you stay there all night. So they're on my desk in the morning. And it was his assumption that unless I specifically said that, he's going home and having dinner with his family. And I've learned that he was right and I was wrong. Everything's not an emergency and family, family time is important. And that's the way we operate here.
1: Hi, this is Matt Sleppen and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is an interview recorded on March 25th with Joe Margolis, the CEO of Extra Space Management, the second largest and longtime top performing REIT in the self-storage space. This is my second interview with a leader of Extra Space. Back in 2018, I interviewed the founder of Extra Space, Ken Woolley. We are overdue, particularly with the performance of the sector and the spotlight on niche businesses within real estate, to revisit self-storage. And no one better to speak with that than Joe. And back in 2018, the Leading Voices interviews were really more about career journeys. And now we're doing deeper dives into the business, so we really get to explore the drivers of the self-storage business in this conversation with Joe. Disclosure, we have a lot of dinner table conversations in my household about self-storage since my wife, Diane Olmsted, is a long-term member of the Extra Space Board, and as you heard from Ken Woolley, and we'll hear again from Joe, Diane was instrumental in helping raise Extra Space's first institutional capital, which is a great story in itself. Believe it or not, this is the 119th episode of Leading Voices, and the past episodes in our library kind of feels like family to me and our family is always in the news. To that point, the companies of two of our past guests were acquired in the past week by Blackstone. The first was American Campus Communities. I interviewed their CEO and founder Bill Bayless back in 2019. It was one of my favorite episodes about a company founder who truly was at the forefront in creating a new niche real estate asset class. Also this past week, PS Business Parks was acquired by Blackstone. I interviewed their then-CEO Maria Hawthorne in March 2020, just prior to the pandemic. Maria was a quiet, humble leader who'd risen through the ranks in her company. So I'm quite sure, given the growing archive of Leading Voices and knowing the quality of our guests, that they and their companies will continue making news and will continue to highlight them here in our Highlights Reel. One of my pleasures in hosting Leading Voices and one of the pleasures of my work in recruiting is that in both instances, I get to interview people from each of the disciplines and all of the nooks and crannies of the real estate world. Between the podcast and my work interviews, I've put in the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours as an interviewer. In my search practice, I generally have a discipline of taking 90 minutes for each interview. It's slow and takes a lot more time than I need to just get the job done. But I'm a curious guy, and it's through my listening and all these interviews that I've really gained my knowledge and understanding of the real estate business. Everyone gets their grist somewhere, and this is mine. It's the blessing of what I do, and I hope that through leading voices and our amazing guests that I'm able to share some of that with you. And on that note, thanks to Terra Search Partners, now Terra ZRG, for sponsorship and the opportunity to do these interviews and the support to host the podcast. If you have comments, questions, guest suggestions, or just want to get in touch, you can contact me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Please share this episode with your friends. Please remember to follow us and subscribe, or please rate us on your podcast app. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Joe Margolis from Extra Space Management. Thank you. So, Joe Margolis, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thank you for being on the show. We had the founder of your company and fascinating individual and serial entrepreneur Ken Woolley on the show back in 2018. And we haven't talked about self-storage on the show since then. And also back then, Leading Voices was largely a discussion of career journeys versus deep dives into the sectors that we're talking about. So today we get to go really deep on self-storage and the drivers of the business and extra spaces place in that business, as well as your career story. So Really, really looking forward to the conversation. And one disclosure for our audience, my wife is on your board, Diane Olmsted, so we know extra space well, care about extra space. I didn't put on my extra space bike jersey for this conversation because you wouldn't have seen it in the discussion. But anyhow, Joe, welcome to the show and thank you for doing this. And maybe your introduction of yourself and the company briefly, and then we'll dive into it.
0: Uh, thank you, Matt. It's, I appreciate you having me today. Uh, Joe Margolis, CEO of Extra Space Storage. I've been CEO for a little over five years, but I've been involved with the company since 1998. I'm an East Coast guy, grew up in Connecticut, lived in many cities up and down the East Coast, married 34 years, three kids. That's my story in a nutshell.
1: <laughs> that fits. So, so tell us about, just give a sense of Extra Space And where you stand in the panoply of companies that we know about that do self-storage. I know Public Storage is the largest company, maybe the first kind of large company in the business, but talk about kind of the larger companies, your role and your position and how you think of extra space in that context.
0: Sure. There's, self-storage is a very fragmented industry. There's five publicly traded self-storage companies. Public storage is the largest, we're the second. There's also a company called CubeSmart, Life Storage, and National Storage. But those companies, plus U-Haul, only make up about a 30% of all the storage facilities in the country. Most of the storage facilities in the country are owned by smaller owners or regional owners or operators that own, you know, two or three or 10 or 15 stores.
1: Uh-huh. If you compare that to, you may not have the answer to this, if you compare that to another more mature sector in real estate where there have been institutional players, is that is 30% less institutionalized than say multifamily or industrial? Any sense of that?
0: Oh, I, I think it very much is. I mean, you think about. Malls, right? Well, I guess. It's changed, but all the malls are owned by a small handful of folks, right? right. So uh, I think self storage is on the more fragmented side of the real estate industry.
1: Okay. And then talk about extra space and its pl- how you position it within that business.
0: Sure. So we're an SP 500 company. We're based in Salt Lake City, Utah. We invest exclusively in self storage, and we have about 2,100 stores in 41 states. Our market caps about $28 billion. So that gives you a sense for our size. Each of the publicly traded self-storage companies are very, very good operators, very good companies. We do a lot of the things the same, but there also are some differences. So extra space, we invest... Across three verticals, if you will, mm-hmm. we wholly own about forty seven percent of our stores. We manage for third parties with no ownership interest, about forty percent of our stores. We're the largest management company in this business. Mm-hmm. And the rest, you know about twelve or thirteen percent are joint ventures. And having this strategy allows us to grow in any economic cycle and also meet the needs of our our counterparties.
1: Talk about third-party management. I know with the apartment business, it's generally, might even be a loss leader. So it's hard to make money and the margins are pretty slim, but it might be synergistic as well. So comments on that?
0: Sure. Third-party management's a very good and important business for us. We uh, make money on it. It's mm-hmm. a profitable business for us. And we we are the most expensive option. We are we, we are more expensive than our peers, but we're the largest by far and growing faster than any other because I think we provide the best product. It also gives us data. So customer data is very important for us to analyze to optimize operations. Mm-hmm. So we have more you know, 40% more customer transactions, 40% more data to analyze because we have 40% more stores that we manage. It provides us operational efficiencies, cost efficiencies, just because we're bigger. Mm -hmm. And we end up buying a good number of them. You know, when the owners we manage for want to sell, we have great relationships with our owners. We're a logical buyer. You know, there's no broker. There's no due diligence. Mm -hmm. We bought... 58 stores just last year out of our management platform. So it's a, it's a great and important business for us.
1: Uh-huh. Begs a couple of questions. So one is you say you're the most expensive service provider and the largest. So what do they get in re- What do they get in return for being the most expensive? Does NOI better? Do they make more money. Your, your data helps in a way that benefits those owners. Yeah.
0: We're, we're able to show that, you know, over almost any time period our owners will make more money with us than our competitors. And, you know, these are very important assets to our owners. It's often their wealth, their family wealth. And it's important. They turn it over to someone that they trust, that they get good customer service from, and that they make a lot of money and we're the best solution. Our competitors are also excellent managers. They're not going to mismanage a store, but we're able to, uh, convince folks that, you know, when you, when you go to a doctor, you don't go pe- pick the cheapest doctor. So this is an important asset. Don't go pick the cheapest manager.
1: Of course. And and talk about, you use the word stores. And yeah. we think of customers, this is a B2C business for sure. More customer and uh, not institutional focused in terms of the clientele than most businesses. But talk about the word store, talk about how data and management affects The management operation of stores versus real estate, which are two kind of different concepts for me.
0: Yeah, we are absolutely a retail operation. We have 1.3 million individual customers who, you know, choose, uh, have a need for storage, choose us to fulfill that need and want to have a, and deserve to have a good customer experience. So we are absolutely in the retail business, the customer service business we use data to make sure we're optimizing the experience. So whether it's on the website, you know, tracking which page customers jump away from because they get frustrated or how they behave, how they react to different things, Mm -hmm. or tracking calls at the call center or monitoring behavior in the store. We want to make sure that we use all this data we get to provide the best and most efficient customer experience.
1: How much of that customer experience is acquisition of the customer and how much is their ongoing thing and how often does like a typical customer come to your store to go into their locker to do something?
0: It varies. There's a good portion of our customers that come on a on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And putting aside the commercial customers, the pharmaceutical rep who comes every day to change up his, his right. wares, the retail customers, and then there's also a good segment that store their stuff and you know come once a year or once every other year. There's lots and lots of different types of customers and customer behavior.
1: Uh But the interaction, the interface, of course, that you might, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, that you might care about the most is the acquisition of the customer as compared to how other self-storage facilities in their market might acquire those customers.
0: I might say it a little differently. The acquisition of the customer is very, very important, Mm -hmm. but we want the customer to have a good experience. When they come, we want the facility to be very clean and brightly lit and feel safe. So they feel comfortable keeping their goods there. And they, if they need stores later on in their life, they're gonna remember a good experience with extra space and come back, or they're gonna tell their friends they had a good experience, or they're not gonna complain. So while the acquisition is important, the customer experience throughout the life cycle, even moving out, making sure they have a smooth experience moving out, even because they're not gonna be our customer anymore, we want to make sure kind of cradle the grave is a good experience
1: uh-huh and and I'm curious because I don't un- understand the customers very well, and I think I read a statistic that 10.65 percent of households have self have a self- storage space. Is that increasing, decreasing, any sense of the numbers of that and kinds of folks who do that and locations and trends for that?
0: So statistics like that in storage are difficult to come by. That's a self-storage association stack, which yes. is probably the best we have. Uh-huh. When I first got involved in self-storage in 1998, that number was 6%. Mm. So now it's a little over 10%. So that's pretty significant growth yeah. in those years. And the billion-dollar question that I'd love to know someone who has the answer to is, where does it go? Does Mm -hmm. it go to 12%, 15%, 20%? No one knows. But as long as I've been involved with this business, there's incremental increase in utilization every year. Uh
1: And, And does this change as housing costs go up? Because housing costs go up, therefore the square footage of a home might go down to make that work. Is that a trend in your favor?
0: I think particularly in urban areas, if people live in smaller and smaller apartments, a self-storage provides a convenient and useful way to to have a closet, if you will, or to have, it's cheaper to go get a five by eight uh, at a close by self-storage facility than it is to move from a one bedroom to a two bedroom. Uh So it is a option that people use when uh, living spaces get smaller.
1: And is there a dynamic between market share increasing, decreasing, or usership increasing, decreasing between urban, semi-urban areas and rural areas, but different dynamics and drivers, or not rural, suburban areas, I guess is the right word?
0: Yeah. So the biggest factors that influence self-storage use is job growth and moving. Right. You know the majority of our tenants are somewhere in the moving process something to do with housing. So areas of the country like the Sun Belt that are experiencing you know robust housing activity tend to be good storage markets and areas of the country where there's less of that transition there's less need for storage
1: mm-hmm. And is that then? people tend to do it for six months, but they wind up staying anyhow, you know, they do it while they're moving and transitioning their stuff, but is it pretty sticky, not sticky, anything on that?
0: It's a really good observation. We survey our customers and universally people stay 50% longer than they think they're going to stay. Now, that holds true whether they think they're going to stay for two months and stay for three months, or they think they're going to stay 10 months and they stay for 15 months and the reason is because self-storage is a need-driven product, right? You you need self-storage because of some life transition. You're moving, mm-hmm. you're, someone died, someone got divorced, new baby, kid moving back in, remodel the kitchen, whatever, and you need self-storage. And then at some point, you don't need it. But there's this inertia.
1: Right, it, a lot of inertia. After
0: you don't need it, you don't go rent the truck and get it out Somewhere in the future, you'll get to
1: it. Uh-huh. it it's interesting because the inertia stories, although we're, we're good, and my wife's on your board, so this is funny, but when we moved the last time, we got self storage, not extra space. You weren't near us or convenient to us at that moment. Oh, you'll be That's happy no to hear excuse. the stories. It was no, it was public storage, and you'll be happy because we took a free month. And Diane made sure that at day 29, I had the stuff out of there. Perfect. <laughs> it was essential to her, especially since they were competitor. If it was extra space, we might have hung out there for a while.
0: Good to hear. Thank
1: you. Any trends in the business? Any, you know, I see these cubes in people's driveways, and then I hear about people like your tennis racket could be stored off-site, and they'll bring you your tennis racket before you go play what is what's the future of those kind of things
0: so the you know the pods in the driveway has been a business for a long time, and it's a viable business. It's a niche business. Many communities don't like it, don't like to have pods in their neighborhoods. uh it's not something we're involved in. I think public storage got in and got out mm-hmm. in the past uh but it's a niche business. it's a different customer set. It's not as big as self storage. The second business you reference, we call valet storage, where, yeah. you know, someone will come to your home with boxes, you fill them up, they'll take them away, and then you can call up and say, you know, give me box three or bring me my ski gear. And, uh, you know, four or five years ago, this came out and there was several dozen companies that got venture capital money to do this. And their business proposition was that they were going to provide this additional service and be cheaper than Mm self-storage. And the way they were going to do that is they were going to rent $9 per square foot space in New Jersey instead of $50 space in Manhattan and use that savings to pay the logistical cost of driving stuff in and out. And I think what wasn't fully understood, and we studied this very hard, is when someone calls up and says, Bring me my ski stuff. Someone's got to put it in a van, got to drive across the George Washington Bridge, have to pay whatever the toll is now on the George Washington Bridge, find your apartment in the Upper West Side, find some place to park, walk it up, you know, go back. So all but one of those companies is now out of business. There's only one left. Mm-hmm. And the, their uh, pricing structure now is much more expensive than self storage. So that tells me two things. One is the business model didn't work. And two, that this is a, a niche business for people who are willing to pay extra for that extra service. So I don't think it's uh, threatening or overlapping that much to self-storage. And
1: mm-hmm. in, in any trends, I got like four or five more questions because I'm trying to understand the waterfront of this. Any, any trends or differences between how this is done in different countries?
0: Usage is very different in different countries, uh, Americans more than I think anywhere else in the world really like stuff,
1: stuff. We're going to talk about stuff in a minute. Yeah. yeah,
0: And we're more transitory. So the, the amount of usage is much different. I was in China before the uh, pandemic looking at self storage there. And it's fascinating because, you know, they have these huge, uh, very dense cities with lots of people who also like stuff. And very, very little self-storage, but very, very little product awareness. Mm-hmm. I think eventually there'll be a more robust self-storage business in China, but I'm not sure who's going to be brave enough to to go over and invest in China.
1: Mm-hmm. And you haven't been international to date, have you?
0: But we've been in Mexico. We invested in Mexico. We had a number of stores there. They performed well. We couldn't scale the business to our satisfaction, so we, we got out. Uh-huh. But we, we were in Mexico for a while. Uh-huh.
1: And and talk about stuff <laughs> for a minute. Yes. This is an American challenge and an American proclivity.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure what the second question is. So it's, it's really interesting. People have emotional attachments to their stuff. And when we talk to our customers about their need for storage, it's really about the future. It's about hope. My wife works with victims of domestic violence. And, you know, sadly, some of them have storage units that they can't really afford where they're storing a couch and a broken lamp. And my wife talks to them about, you know, why do you have this? Why do you spend money on this? and it's because someday i'm going to have an apartment again. Mm-hmm. It's that hope for the future. And that's kind of a sad story, but it's positive. You know, someday this crib that my grandmother made is going to be for my grandchild or so a lot of storage is about, you know, hope for the future and getting get, you know, using stuff for tomorrow. Those emotional attachments to things are are real.
1: And a- couple more questions about this is there outdoor storage like people you know put their rvs places is that a specialty type of cell storage and are you involved with those kinds of things
0: so we have many many facilities that in addition to having indoor storage have parking or boat or rv storage Right. we have very few maybe one that i can think of that have the washing facilities and the cleaning and the Mm -hmm. gas and all the it's really just parking, just storage, not an RV or a boat, full service facility.
1: But that does exist. There's a niche of that. And there's probably also a niche of specialty storage. So I'm thinking of three types, and you'll smile at this one, but I'm thinking of wine because I'm in Sonoma County. Two, I'm thinking of guitars. So Neil Young had a place where he kept a whole bunch of guitars and it flooded, and he lost a bunch. And I read about that because I'm into that stuff. And then the third example is one that you and I will remember. And you gave me one of the blessings of my life, having dinner at your house with Bob Woodward. And as a professional interviewer, it was really cool to have dinner with him. But Bob Woodward talked about keeping his archives in a self-storage unit. And we all got nervous because we didn't. We wanted it better protected. So I'm thinking of Guitars, Wine, and Bob Woodward's archives what's the deal with protection of stuff and are there more protected places versus less protected places i don't know if that's the right way to ask the question but i think you know what i mean
0: so i'll talk about specialty storage first and again you know we we seek to be a broad-based business so we have some wine storage mm-hmm. but it requires additional temperature control and things right. and it's not as broad-based as you know most of our customers need so it is kind of a niche business I think in general, though, we strive to make every effort that our facilities provide, you know, clean, safe, secure, dry self-storage. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that sometimes, you know, we don't have a fire or bad things happen. And, you know, when that happens, we, we try our best to do the right thing. But storage is is a safe place to put your things and you can sleep. You should be able to sleep well that your things are, are being protected. If you have specialty items, you might see climate control self-storage as opposed to non-climate control self-storage.
1: Right. But
0: uh, it's a very safe way for people to safeguard their goods.
1: Yeah. But there are probably places where there is a higher premium to that, be it for wine, be it for guitars, be it for Bob Woodward's sure. archives. <laughs>
0: yeah, if you have artwork or, you know, you have very expensive cars, you don't want to store them in an outdoor lot with us. You might want to find, you know, more indoor secure storage.
1: Yeah, it's not a safety deposit box. I guess it's another form of self-storage. It's interesting. I didn't put those yeah, two together, a, but it's point. A, yeah. a little bit different per square foot deal. But um, right. so let's talk about Extra space for a few minutes, and and I'm curious, one thing, so you're a $32 billion market cap company, you're an S&P 500 company, you've been ranked 90th uh, out of all companies as a glass door best places to work, and you have the highest 10-year total return among public REITs, and actually double the return of the nearest self-storage company including a 5X return on public storage, the biggest company in the space, and one that people think about because it's almost like Kleenex or something. So talk about that and what enables that kind of performance and what it is about your platform that, that accomplishes those things.
0: So it's several things. And I think the first is the reference to the Glassdoor rating of 90, 90th best place to work out of over a million companies. It's because we have great people, right? People drive our business. And since we were a very small company, our culture has valued people. And we want to attract the best group of diverse teammates we can. We want to treat everyone well with respect, give them a voice at the table, provide career opportunities, and just be a great place to work. And when you have great people, particularly ones who are dealing with customers, Mm -hmm. they'll provide great customer service and they'll think of great things to innovate and advance the company. So people are a very important part of our company and that is especially true now when many companies are trying to reduce people through technology and go to managerless stores. And I think that can be overdone. We certainly are seeking efficiencies and want to make sure we use technology to provide our product to our customers. But we are not trying to eliminate the human being Mm -hmm. from the process because we think the human being is important. So I think people is one factor in uh, our success over the years.
1: Let me drill down on that for a second. No one would not say the things you just said. So no one would say, hey, we, we have mediocre people, or we don't treat our people well. But I'm thinking about how you drive that down to the people in the field and how they actually walk the walk and talk the talk. And I'm remembering some years ago, I did a panel at an AREIT uh, conference, and I had two REIT analysts talk about how they differentiated companies. And one of them, I've quoted this before, Ross Smotrich, a friend of mine, talked about how he tours properties at the site level and then he judges how much they walk the walk and are able to talk the talk about their company how it is dispersed down that far in a company so how do you actually make that happen
0: so it's not easy right when when you're 12 properties it's easy to know every employee and what they like to do on the weekend and their spouse (laughs) And when you're 2100 properties and over 4000 employees, it's easy to default into layers and bureaucracy and people are cogs in the machine. And we have to fight very hard not to default to that. And one way we do that is we talk about our values. We talk about our culture a lot. And Mm -hmm. when we make decisions. Very frequently, someone will say, is this consistent with who we want to be? Is this consistent with our values? And we encourage those questions, and we encourage people to raise their hands and say, hey, I think this is wrong, or I think this goes against what we stand for. And people are rewarded for that and not chastised. The second thing we do is we make sure there's personal contact with every employee. So... I have lunch with every new employee who's hired here in the corporate office. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do town halls where the executive team goes out and sits face-to-face and has a meal and a discussion so that our goal is every employee gets to sit down and have a meal and talk to me at least once every two years. Uh, We go out and tour stores and ask the people who are actually at the point of the spear. What's frustrating you? What's working well? What is so I think it's time and effort to, to connect with people on a human basis and listen to them that really helps in this regard.
1: We're going to get into your story in a few minutes, but I'll hit a preview of some of that. You came over as an investment guy. Yes. And so coming over to this company and then having this be a headline... Is this more of your time and more of your attention than you thought? Did you think you were coming to run an investment company and realize you were running an operating company? And was that a, both a surprise and then you had to grow to do that?
0: Uh, I wouldn't say it the other way around. One of the things that attracted me to come here was the type of company this was and how it treated people. Mm-hmm. I When I came here seven years ago, I knew this company very well. Yes. Yeah. And there was no surprise to me that the main focus of this company was on its people and how they're treated.
1: Mm-hmm. Any is a sensitive question, but companies based in Salt Lake City, and I know the founder and much of the initial folks were Mormon. And is there anything from that culture that is invested in that kind of platform behavior?
0: I think there is, Matt. No, I often hear that we're a we're a Mormon company. We're not. A, I don't even know what that means. I don't right. think, you know, we're a REIT that was founded by a member of the church, and we have many many executives, employees who are members of the church because of where we we are based. Mm-hmm. But we're not a Mormon company. And I I also would, would say, you know. the, the Mormon is this or Mormon is that, any more than I would say, you know, Native Americans are this or Jews are that or anything. Right. But in general, there is a a culture that affects our company by being based in Salt Lake City. You know, our culture as a company focuses on hard work and teamwork, you know, always trying to do the right thing, caring for other people. And I think these values are very consistent, which with what I understand, at least the church to teach its members, Mm -hmm. our company promotes a very healthy work-life balance, Mm -hmm. and that's consistent with the church's value and focus on strong families. I should tell you a funny story about that. My first week here, I uh, wanted some numbers, man, and I ran into an analyst and said, can you run all these numbers this way? And he said, sure, and took him, and went got in the elevator and went home to have dinner with his family. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my assumption coming from the East Coast that when the CIO at the time tells you to run numbers, you go back to your office, you stay there all night, so they're on my desk in the morning. And it was his assumption that unless I specifically said that, he's going home and having dinner with his family. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that he was right and I was wrong. Everything's not an emergency and family, family time is important and that's the way we operate here. But anyway, I think that that comes from that is consistent, at least with the church's view on family. I think the other thing is that, you know, just being in Salt Lake City, we can attract a lot of very smart, talented, educated people who are members of the church and want to want to live here because they want to live in this community.
1: It's interesting. We talk about this on Leading Voices all the time, and it's driver. we talk about corporate culture a lot, much more than I ever anticipated would be a theme and a subject. But there are things that those values come from in a corporate environment, that the founders started with a goal, and the goal wasn't just growth or dollars. The growth was great company, and I think that's embedded in a company like yours and most of the great companies that we get to talk to.
0: Thank
1: you, Matt. And that that comes from culture, right? So it does come somewhat from people's background. So let's talk about you. And I'm curious about kind of your story and then how you got to this place. Uh, We're both from the East Coast. You said from Connecticut. You grew up, went to law school, went to Harvard. So kind of talk about that and your goals growing up and as you began your career.
0: Sure. I went to Harvard College. I took uh, a constitutional law class when I was a junior from Archibald Cox, Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the wow. coolest thing in the world, right? right? To have Archibald Cox teach you about constitutional law. So I decided to go to law school and I got there and it was all litigation and Civ Pro, and how many days to file this appeal. And I hated it. So I went into real estate, which was more transactional. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed that very much. Worked for a law firm, went in-house with Prudential. Uh, and,
1: and, and just pause on that. Why go in-house from a law firm? What was the goal for you in that transition?
0: I don't think it was as purposeful as it sounds uh-huh. the head of the real estate department of the law firm uh-huh. that I was at left and took a bunch of the clients with them. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall at the law firm about the quality of work uh-huh. the job opportunity came up and I think I got lucky because it was a, it was a great job, a great company and defined my career in many ways.
1: Yep. Okay. So you start in Peru in the real estate group, but as yeah, an attorney. So how did that transition lawyer. into investments?
0: So I, I mean, I kind of view transaction as there's you know there's players and referees and scorekeepers, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be an accountant or a lawyer. I wanted to be a player. So mm-hmm. Prue was nice enough to give me the opportunity to move over to the capital markets group, and that was actually when I met Ken Woolley, the founder of Extra Space, doing that, and uh, I worked for Prue until myself and a couple other portfolio managers decided to leave and start our own investment management firm.
1: Yeah so mm-hmm. let's go back to that first meeting because that's of course where our stories connect and you met Diane who was yeah, yeah. then helping a eight store company get capital yeah. is that what it was at 12 stores 12 stores okay what what did that investment look like to you? How did you underwrite that thing? And could you have imagined?
0: Yeah, no. So I was in Los Angeles meeting with an office company. My job was to find companies that Pru, real estate companies proof could invest in. Mm-hmm. And Diane called me and said, I know you're in California. Do you have any free time to meet this guy, Ken Woolley? I said, sure, Diane, I'll meet anybody. What does Ken Woolley do? Mm-hmm. And Diane said, he has 12 self-storage properties. And I said, Diane, no way it's a dirty asset class. There's no exit. You can't leverage. It's not institutional. We're not doing it. She said, just as a favor to me, meet Ken. Uh So Ken picked me up and took me to the first self-storage property i had ever been to. I had no idea what it was. Uh And he explained how the cash flows work and the operating margins and the opportunity. and, And Ken's just a fascinating, charismatic, intelligent guy. And convince me so I went back to New Jersey and told my boss we should look at investing in this self-storage property. and I think I was so young I didn't understand the career risk I was taking. and he said the same thing I said to Diane, there's no way we'll never do it. So brought Ken and Spencer Kirk out and after a long process, Prudential ended up making a 150 million dollar programmatic growth capital investment in the company. That allowed the company to get big enough, along with some other things it did, to go public in 2004.
1: And in 2004, how many properties did it have? From did it then have?
0: Wow, I don't know the answer to that. I think I think slightly over a hundred, but I don't I don't know offhand.
1: Okay, it doesn't need to be precise anyhow. So, but directionally, so it had increased to be of scale. Did you right. find in the conversation with Ken when you when he had these twelve properties? I'm thinking he's he's not a mom and pop, but that's the word we would use for someone with 12 properties. Sure. But how did you... But the goal was for him to grow. So how did you have the faith that this was a platform that would grow? And that did you have a sense that this was an institutional asset class? I'm pretty sure public storage was already there and SureGuard yeah. and some others.
0: So Ken built his first self-storage property in 1977. Uh-huh. Between 1977 1998, he had built, leased up 60 stores. He, that's right. But but he didn't have any capital. So he had to sell, you know, keep selling the last one to get the money for the next one. So that's right. why he only had 12 at the time. But he had a successful track record of making a lot of money mm-hmm. on these stores. But he wanted off the treadmill. He needed capital to grow so he didn't have to keep selling to, to get the, the new capital to build the next one.
1: Okay. So then... You do this deal. We're going to come back to extra space later in your career. And then you and a couple people leave Prudential. So you yes. have the, you're you taking the risk. You have the guts. You're going to start your own investment platform. Talk about that.
0: Yeah, we decided we wanted to own our own business and do what we were doing for Prudential for ourselves. And we raised a couple funds. It got a big asset management assignment, probably about $350 million altogether. And then 2008 and nine happened. Our investment strategy focused on brownfield reclamation and condo conversions and kind of a lot of things Risking that got beat up pretty hard. Uh-huh. So the business stopped growing and it wasn't big enough to support three of us. So so I left and the other two partners kept running it. And I went down to Washington, D.C. to work for a office and residential developer there.
1: And on one other question, which is Prudential, I think we used to call it Mother Prue. So Mother Prue. Mother Prue. But the learning and the institutional sense of it, because they were one of the first even pre-REIT era companies that had an institutional approach to the business. And then you brought that into that next job. Any comments about kind of what got into your guts from that, the contacts you made, and the person you'd become when you went off on your own?
0: Prudential's is just a fantastic training ground. And you look around the real estate industry and see how many people – Yes, you know, have roots and credential, and you know the things I learned there about, you know, focus on clients, you know, invest, you know, your duty to investors, and just underwriting and risk reward, and uh, so many smart people there who, who taught me so much, you know, allowed allowed me I think to to have the confidence to take the step and, and form our investment management firm and and raise and and raise money and invest it quasi successful.
1: Yeah. I think the ripple effects from that company and the partners they've done business with and the funding they've done for joint ventures over the years, it's the you know, one of the preferred platforms to do business with because you could trust it.
0: Yeah. It's an awesome company.
1: So then you go to DC. So your yes. company hits hits the GFC. Is it, it by the way, is that company still there and your partner's still in business?
0: Nope. All the assets have been liquidated and distributed to the investors. So okay. it doesn't exist anymore.
1: And, and so then you go to D.C. And then at what point in this process do you get on the board of Extra Space?
0: Well, I got on the board in
1: 2004.
0: I, I missed one meeting, right, when they went public. But by coincidence, I left Prue to form Arsenal Real Estate was our name the same month that Extra Space went public. So I was no longer conflicted. Yeah. And Ken asked me to be on the board. So I was on the board from... I guess my first board meeting was February 2005. So from 2005 to 2015, I was on the board of directors.
1: Okay. So then you go to D.C. And just talk about that era in your career, and then we'll talk about coming back or start coming to Salt Lake City.
0: I worked for a uh, moderately sized family-owned business that had had tremendous, tremendous success in uh, primarily office, but some residential building in Virginia, DC, Maryland area. And they wanted to get institutional. They wanted to adopt institutional practices, attract institutional money. And uh, they hired me to help them do that. And we had a a great run. It was a great, it is a great company, a great people. And uh, I left there because I had this opportunity to come back to extra, to come to extra space, not because of you know anything having to do with the, the company.
1: Mm-hmm. How'd you enjoy your time in DC? I
0: love DC. I love DC. I have two kids who still live there. I think it's a fantastic city and uh, just a great place to live.
1: My two kids live there too. So talk about going to extra space, talk about the transition. You started as chief investment officer, but I'm assuming that was with the intention of taking over from Spencer. And then talk about the transition for you, which we previewed a few minutes ago, but to be CEO, it's a different set of skills and a different lifestyle and different thought process. So talk about all that.
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing was just moving to Utah. Talk about
1: that. (laughs) That's different,
0: right? And it's a great place to live, but it's different. my, My first or second week of work, I was coming out of our office complex and there was a red light to get onto the main road. So I stopped. And being a little A-type, I immediately start checking messages on my phone. Mm-hmm. And then I look up, and the light's green, and there's two cars behind me waiting. And I said, no, I'm not in New York anymore. Yeah, <laughs> of
1: course. No <laughs> oh, honks, eh? You
0: know, so that it's it took a little getting used to. But Utah is a wonderful place, and uh, I miss Jewish deli and good Italian food. But other than that, I like living here.
1: Do, do they have any of that stuff? And you live in Park City, right? So, and, and Park City in Park. is damn close to Salt Lake. So, talk about that—just yes. what that difference is, and commute, and all that—just for us who we all know about Park City.
0: So, I moved out here quickly. I got an apartment downtown. I was trying to, you know, learn the city, find a neighborhood to live at, and I realized I could live in Park City. And why wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. So, I told Spencer, who was the CEO before me, "I'm going to live in Park City," and he got all agitated. Joe, you can't live in Park City. It's twenty-five minutes each way every day. Nobody can do that. I said, "Yes, Ben, I think I'll be okay. You know, I think I think that's manageable." So I live in Park City. I drive over the mountain every day. It's a beautiful thing. I get to work, and it's uh,
1: it's awesome. This has nothing to do with our podcast, but I'm get to normal altitude, or can you like run forever?
0: I, I can't run forever no matter where I am. I wish that was true, but I'm not a runner.
1: Okay. I'll take that. So, um, but talk about the transition to running a company. Now, it's obviously a company you're familiar with, a company you invested in when it had 12 properties, um, but it is a different thing to be at the top of an organization. And as I like to say on the podcast, and you've said it here, it's a business platform more than is an investment company. So, Kind of what how did you have to stretch, grow, learn? Were there hiccups? Talk about any but any of that.
0: To be honest, it was easier than I thought. And I think it was easier for a couple of reasons. One is I didn't become the CEO of Enron. Mm-hmm. I became the CEO of a really, really well run company that has a lot of long term employees who are focused on the company first, not on themselves, and are here to, you know, we're here to help. And not a lot of sharp elbows, if any, here. So that made it easy. The second thing is I was smart enough or clever enough or lucky enough to know that the worst thing I could do is to come in and very quickly try to make a whole bunch of changes and mm-hmm. put my fingerprints on things. Mm-hmm. So I came in and moved very slowly and certainly made some changes, but, you know, had made sure I had consensus and did things slowly and with a soft touch. And then the third thing is I still had the prior two CEOs, Ken, Ken William Spencer Kirk right here to, to help anytime I needed it. So I think those three things made the transition easier than would have otherwise been. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and how has the company then changed since you've come in? So what are the changes evolution? And of course it's now a while, but also the market's changed in and- We've been through the pandemic, so you've had some tests, and it's a really competitive business. So talk about that.
0: So the company's gotten a lot larger, and that's allowed us to do things that were either inappropriate or unavailable for a smaller company. Technology has advanced very, very quickly, and we've been a, tried to do everything we can to be at the forefront of that, and I hope we are. And I also think that I've brought some innovation and outside thinking to this company. Most people in this company are homegrown and have a lot of great self-storage experience Mm -hmm. and understand the way Extra Space does things. Since I've been here, we've expanded and done different types of partnerships. We started a bridge loan program. We've done structured finance. We've entered into triple net leases. We've tried to be very innovative on the investment side to match the innovation that we have on the technology side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another factor that's helped us outperform our our peers.
1: Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask that question of kind of how much self-storage is one of the darlings of real estate. It's something like single family rental that you hear about all the time now. And maybe 10 years ago, you didn't much hear about it It was a niche, one of those weirdo niches, but it's not now. Everyone wants to do it. I, I talked to different colleagues in the business and say, we're going to do a little bit of self-storage because we make some money at that. And so how much of this is the sector's lifting and therefore it's lifting you? And how much is it that you have that secret sauce expertise to know how to play that? And then do you worry about all the attention in the space?
0: So absolutely, the, you know, the tide is rising and all ships are rising with it, including us. We benefit from... The absolute tremendous performance that the industry has had and lower cap rates. So, you know, we know that part of this is being in the right spot. And it's not that we're such unique talents. But I think we also have done things on the edges where we do better than the industry. And you pointed out a bunch of our numbers earlier. You know, you can look at almost any time period and we have outperformed our peers and I think that's because of the things we do they don't do our people and our and our platform and I'm very concerned about all the capital that's flooding into this space because one it's going to give rise to more development and excess development leads to a slowdown in performance and it tends to people do things that may not be as smart because they're they're just too many dollars chasing deals
1: yeah and it's dumb capital who don't know the business to say, well, this is the promised land, we're going to go there. And in that case, all tides lower all boats instead of raise all boats.
0: And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, self-storage is now more of an accepted and mature asset class, right? Mm-hmm. After 2008 and nothing was built. Almost nothing was built. And it allowed us to have this great performance for so long. We're, we're going to be subject to the normal cycles of more mature property type now. We're going to be more like apartments where we'll, we'll have normal cycles. And our job is to to look for the unique opportunities that present themselves in different different real estate cycles and to help perform our peers.
1: Mm-hmm. And if you think of the different sectors, and I think you're on the board of a, of a single family rental company, I think you're on the board of Invitation Homes, maybe others, I'm not sure. But if you think about the apartment industry or other sectors of commercial real estate, as the niche sectors. niche become more mainstream, how do you play them against each other as an investment thesis?
0: So I am on the board of Invitation Homes. I think single family uh, looks a lot like self-storage. You know, several many years ago in Mm -hmm. terms of its maturity and cash flow characteristics, it's a great business and Invitation Homes is a great company. I think your question about how do you play off against different property types as a real estate investor? Is that
1: the. Yes, let, let's question? play off, but how do you know the sectors have different volatility, different investment sure. dynamics over time? So that's the guess what I'm asking.
0: Yeah, it's you know, it's, it's the billion dollar question all the allocators are asking, right? And yeah. You know, certainly the cash flow, uh, short lease asset classes like storage and apartments and single family homes are look very very attractive now and industrial certainly has been data centers because of where the economy is right and you know i don't know what the future of office is now with i don't know how permanent work from home or hybrid work is going to be that's office and know, malls
1: are the two sectors we uh, question the most even more than hospitality
0: no storage doesn't have the same target on its back we you know we are a little misunderstood people municipalities jurisdictions don't necessarily want us often in their towns and we have to educate them that these are you know beautiful clean retail looking facilities there's not a lot of traffic it doesn't create you know vagrancy or bad things like that but there's still some people have kind of the, the old vision of storage of cinder blocks and barbed wire and guard dogs and all of that. And that, that's not today's self-storage.
1: Well, let's talk about that for a minute. We'll probably not have the last part of this on, on the podcast. But it is interesting. You know, I look at your website and the properties are new, beautiful very institutional look clean everything else all the right words to it and I drive by them all the time too so I experience the same thing particularly for extra space but the mom and pops may not keep to the same standards how sensitive two questions one how sensitive is the marketplace to wanting to be in a really really clean place they feel safer with their stuff that sits there and then the second question is what's the public is the public perception therefore of self-storage? kind of change to this nicer stuff?
0: I I think the public perception has is more and more of the available storage is the current generation of product and people have used it. That's what they're used to. That's what they relate to self-storage. About half of our customers have never used storage before. So there's a good portion of the population that needs to be introduced to the product and you know after location and price which are the first two important things i think cleanliness and security and safety are very important or maybe they're table stakes maybe you don't even get to location and price unless you do feel comfortable walking into the walking into the facility so it is certainly something we focus on and think is very important
1: yeah it's changed and modified a whole lot from what it used to be so the last question, always on leading voices, is what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business?
0: Never stop learning. Never be afraid to ask a question and take every take every meeting that's offered to you. Meet everyone you can. It certainly changed uh, changed my career when I took a meeting with someone that, as a favor, that I didn't think was going to lead anyone. So it's keep, interesting.
1: You just just two things. One, you described the, your first meeting with Ken Woolley as a, okay. I got an hour. I'll do it.
0: Yeah. Exactly right.
1: And the other thing is, is, and I experienced this more and more through my career, real estate more than other industries is a people and relationship business. And the benefits of that are huge as one navigates their career to know that and then take advantage of it and take advantage of the wrong word, but to benefit from those relationships through and through and take them seriously. It's a long game. I couldn't agree
0: more on that.
1: Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at TerrasearchPartners.com. See you next time.